0: This is Brian Bellick, and I'm joined by my partner, Jim Warren. Welcome to the Coach's Show podcast presented by Bud Light. It's a sure sign of the good time.
1: Knox left with Kaysan. Right side, of Williams with Jammer. Eye formation left behind. Cutler, he takes. Plate fake to the pocket. Pressure
0: coming, steps up. Going to lock to the end zone. Going for Knox. Makes a turn in the end zone. Makes the grab. Back of the end zone. Left side. Johnny Knox.
1: Touchdown. Touchdown Bears.
0: Well, Jim, um, let's let's start off with, and, and we've talked about many times, that when you make a change at the quarterback position, either due to injury or to performance, there's nothing more dramatic to a team than that. And you have a couple pretty good teams right now that are having to deal with that. Chicago with Jay Cutler now, not knowing for sure how long he's going to be out with that thumb. Let's talk about the Bears and what that means for the Bears.
1: Well, You know the Bears sit at seven and three, and uh, obviously they're chasing the Packers, and I don't think they'll catch the Packers. But I don't think it's inconceivable to see them going twelve and four, even without Jay Cutler. And the reason I say that, Brian, is that you know I really think they play outstanding defense, and they've made a real commitment to their running game, and uh, I think they can continue to play a controlled uh, passing game style of offense, run the football, play good defense, play good special teams. We know that. You know, Devin Hester's a threat anytime you kick to him, which teams continue to do. So, you know, I mean, I think it's significant that that they've lost Jay Cutler. But I think they're playing with a lot of confidence as a team. And I don't think that it's going to be any more than a little bump in the road for them. And I don't say that as a slap to Jay Cutler at all because I have tremendous respect for him. It's more just the way I feel about the Bears
0: as a football team right now. It's going to show up when they play one of those games, possibly in the playoffs, against a team like Green Bay. Maybe a quarterback like Drew Brees uh, uh, in New uh, New Orleans to where, but I agree with you, and this underlines why you you can take strength in having a team that has this formula. I just did the Forty Nine er game, and we keep talking about uh, Alex Smith, and he's just a manager of the game. Well, you can win some games that way, and they're they've set themselves up; they've earned the right to be able to win out this way. When we get to the playoffs, okay, we'll see. We'll see if, yeah, when it falls on the quarterback's shoulder, can he make a difference. But I think the Bears, and they can rally around that. We've seen that too where you've made a change, and the team will rally around it going, okay, we all got to step up now and do even a little bit better than we've already been doing.
1: Well, it just feels to me. Well, first of all, you look at their schedule here. Oakland at home, Kansas City at home, obviously both very winnable games. Uh, at Denver, once again, I think a winnable game. Seattle at home. Now, Seattle over the last couple of years has given them some trouble, and Seattle does play good run defense. So there might be you know, a little more reliance on the passing game there. At Green Bay, you know, I, I, it's hard to, to see them going up there and winning that game with a backup quarterback. And then at Minnesota, which is a winnable game. So uh, I think that it's a team right now that's playing with a tremendous amount of confidence, regardless of who their quarterback is. I don't feel like... They've had to rely on Jay Cutler much like they were early in last season or early this season. You know, they've become a more complete football team. And so I'm sure it'll affect them. I mean, it, it obviously affects you any time you lose your starting quarterback. And and I'm just not sure how much. There'll
0: be it's the going. normal rumors about, you've already heard, them. well, Brett Favre. Well, enough with that. No, forget no, no. Brett Favre. Um, but because of Mike Mart's relationship um, with, with Bolger, Mark Bolger, now – Let's keep in mind now, regardless of what Cutler's situation is, you do need a backup. They do have a guy in Caleb Haney who's got a little experience now, so I think they've got faith in him. But let's keep in mind, you do need a backup. So, right. And you're beginning to see some names like Jeff Garcia and some of the others. That, that's legitimate now. You've got to have, you've got to protect yourself if something should happen to Haney. But I think because he has some experience and because of the style of play that we've talked about that Chicago has now adapted, that they'll feel comfortable going in with Haney. But they will probably bring someone in in the advent that something happens to him.
1: Well, Brian, even though they lost the NFC Championship game last year to Green Bay, Caleb Haney did play in that game. And, you know, you played pretty well. And he played pretty well. So I would think that that would not only give him confidence going forward, but also give the team confidence in him. Uh, It would not surprise you or I or anybody, I'm sure, to see them go out and sign a a name quarterback that's that's on the street now. But I don't think they would do that to play him. I think they'd certainly just do it to, to use him as a backup. But, uh, you know, I don't know why I feel this way because typically I think that uh, losing your, your starting quarterback this time of the season is really going to affect your team. But with Chicago, I don't know that it will. And then I think with Houston as well, you know, where Matt Leinart's playing for for, uh, for Schaub, I'm not sure how much that will affect them either. You know, well, it's the
0: same thing. What They're running the ball. Yep. Uh, they've done it the last couple of weeks. You made the point. It's not like Schaub's been throwing it all over the place the last couple right. of weeks. He, he has less than 20 throws in each of the last two games. They're getting Andre Johnson back, so it looks like they're getting Andre Johnson back. They're playing better defense. We said it before. We're going to find out about Matt Leinart here because he is, this is a guy with talent now. No one can question he has the physical tools to play. He's stepping into a ready made situation for himself. He doesn't have to carry this team on his back so you're talking about two teams now that could make legitimate playoff runs certainly Houston in the division they're at and where they are right now. Um, with these guys, and uh, it's great for the league that it, and a team mentality that says, you know what, next man up, right? That's yep. the saying. I think, unlike Chicago,
1: the deal with Lineart is that I don't know that Matt Schaub will make it back this year. If it, that is a Liz Frank injury, then he's probably done for you know in, until next year's training camp at the very least, and maybe into the preseason. So Lineart might have to take this team into and through the playoffs, and uh I don't think that'll necessarily be the case with Haney, but. Uh, you know liner this is this is probably his last shot you know and i think you bring up a great point brian is that he doesn't have to do it on his own i think in other places he's been he's probably felt the burden of having to be the guy that had to go out and make a lot of plays and he just he's, he needs to play smart football make good decisions not turn the football over you know hand that ball off to those two <laughs> running backs and get it to Andre Johnson and their tight ends and 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 they've got a chance to be good because like you said they they play they played excellent defense. This year. There, there was
0: another change of quarterback duty injury, another first-round draft choice that got put into the lineup yep. in Vince Young with Philadelphia and actually looked pretty good. And as you can imagine, there's already a little bit of the, ooh, do we have a quarterback controversy? <laughs> I love the way we create these controversies all in the span of a week.
1: Yeah, well, he, you know, and watching that game, early in the game he looked very tentative throwing the football, which would you, you would expect. He has not played for a long time. But as the game progressed, he seemed to be more comfortable And I think you any time you can run the football, which the the Eagles have been able to do with LaShawn McCoy, they have a good screen game, and then last night um, or Sunday night they played good defense, uh, you take a lot of the burden off of your quarterback. Um, When they get into one of those games, though, where they've got to sling it down the field a whole lot, then we're going to find out a little bit more about where Vince Young is right now.
0: Yeah, and it's really typically where it shows up, and you saw it with Young, a unique to that game the other night. He threw three interceptions, but but they still won. Right. That's really where it's the errors that jump out at you, whether it's a liner, uh, whether it's uh, Haney coming in. They'll manage the game okay. Yeah, can they make or not make some of the big plays? But if they can minimize the turnovers, then you got a chance. Yes, they do. Here are the Chargers with real nice field position out of timeouts. Their own 45-yard line, 156 to play. Shotgun snap to Rivers. Clary the seal off block. Rivers has to scramble, though, and he'll chuck it. It's going to be picked off. Why was he throwing it? Corey Graham has got it, and that's going to end the ball game. It's at the 40-yard line of San Diego. I don't know if maybe Phillip was trying to just throw it out of bounds and it never got there, but he threw it right to Corey Graham. Let's talk about uh, the the, uh, San Diego Chargers. You know, we just got done with the Bears and obviously with the injury, and they were at home. But uh, the Chargers, uh, this is going to be interesting to see because this is a team that classically has struggled early, come on late. So they know what it is to be in this situation. But a five-game losing streak, this this is going to be a little bit different for them.
1: They've got to find a way to get themselves out of the funk that they're in because they do have the ability still to go win the AFC West. And you're so right, Brian. You know, when a team's been in this situation before, as they have, and had to fight their way out of it, they know they can do it. The key, though, is just getting – that win that they need so desperately. Now, they played Denver at Jacksonville, Buffalo, and Baltimore. So their next four games, you know, three of those you'd say, hey, those are very winnable games. Baltimore would be the one that will be probably the most difficult. But they've got to, as Chris Berman used to say, they've got to get off the snide here a little bit. You know, they've got to get out of this free fall that they're in and get their mojo going again. Um, You know, they've, they've turned the ball over way too much this year. You know, Phillip Rivers with 15 interceptions already, But they find themselves in a vision where, you know, it's capable or they're capable of pulling themselves out of this thing.
0: Well, and and I can't we also have to remember now You're exactly right. They're in the AFC West. And I don't know if I'm ready to anoint Oakland, even though they're playing well, Mm -hmm. uh, anoint Oakland to say, you know what, the rest of the way they're not going to stumble. They're capable, like all the in, teams in the league right now, where we've seen a head scratching. Boy, how, how did that happen? I think we'll see less of that yeah. the latter part of the season. We're at the point now where we know who the good teams are. You know who the bad teams are. It, it, it would be confounding to think a team – could slip here in November and December. So we're gonna, I think we'll see a little more consistency out of Oakland. But I don't know that I'm willing, even with two games back, I'm willing to say, no, no, Raiders are going to finish this thing out, and and I'm not so sure that, that indeed, the Chargers, with the talent they have, can not come back.
1: Well, you look at the AFC West, and you use the word consistency, and I see a division filled with four inconsistent teams right now. Um, you know, you look at some other divisions, and, and the concrete's starting to harden a little bit. You know, we know who the teams are and what they're capable of, but I don't know that in the in, in the AFC West if we know that yet. You know, Denver... Uh, yeah, Denver's going mean, to be a factor as well. We don't know exactly who Denver is yet. You know, we know who they've been the last four games. We don't know if that can continue. Um, as you said with, with the Raiders, you know, they've had some stumbles. They haven't been a consistent team. The, certainly the Chargers, who've lost five in a row, they haven't been a consistent team. Um and then Kansas City, you know, they've been up and down all year. So I'm sure that that division will take another twist or another turn here before the season's over. You
0: know, let's talk. I want to talk about something that that we're, we're going to talk about on our coaches show. Um, but and North Turner, we both have a great deal of respect for North Turner, uh, and it has less to do with the, the the actual decisions that were made at the end of the half. There were some decisions about a timeout and a challenge and some of the other things. Let's talk a little bit about a head coach that calls the plays, whether it be offensively or defensively. And, and the idea that if you're going to do that, it, it, that's an all consuming thing. And if, and, and I've done both, uh, and, if you're going to call the plays as a head coach, you better have somebody on the sideline or in the booth that is kind of in charge of those things that you normally do as a head coach to say, okay, I'm going to be making those decisions that you remove yourself from the situation. Do we go forward on fourth down? Should we challenge here? What are the timeouts? Where are we in a two minute situation? Cause if you think you can do it both, that's, that's, that's heavy lifting.
1: Well, I think certainly, uh, Asking yourself to do both of those things, you you better be an experienced coach first of all. And you, as you said, you better have someone that you really trust up in the booth because those game game management decisions, they always fall on the head coach. You know whether you have someone helping you or not. Those are th- those should be, in my opinion, and you've done both. They should be primary. You know, manage. I think as a head coach, you've got to manage the game for your team on game day. But there are coaches such as yourself, or Norv Turner, or Mike McCarthy, or Uh, Sean Payton, and I can name others that are such great play callers that they don't want to remove that aspect of the game from their plate. They want to continue to manage, you know, the side of the ball that is their expertise. When they do that, you know, they double the burden on themselves because to to call plays and manage all of the small – yet significant decisions you have to make during a game as a head coach can sometimes be overwhelming.
0: I was interested, you, you actually kept a notebook Absolutely. of situations, not only yours, but those that you saw during the course of other games in terms of managing in all those critical situations what was done, what worked, what didn't.
1: Every week I would go through the games in the league and uh, try to find critical decisions that were made by coaches uh, whether they worked out or didn't work out, and analyze them and and put myself in the position of the coach that made the decision and, you know, how I would have reacted. And certainly I always self-evaluated the decisions I made. And uh, I felt like I had to be so on top of the potentials that could come up during a game. You know, I didn't call the offenses. I helped call the defenses. I put a lot of faith in my defensive coordinator, but I helped call the defenses. But I felt like my primary role was to manage the game and make the right decisions for my team in terms of, as you said earlier, when to use timeouts, when to go for two, when to go for on fourth down, uh, you know, when to use our timeouts, things like that. Uh, So I would, I kept a notebook and then before every game I would spend about a half an hour just reviewing all of those situations so that I felt mentally prepared going into the game. Now, there's always things that come up that you're not prepared for and you hope that you make the right decision for your team. But I think if your plate is cleared a little bit from the burden of calling plays offensively or trying to call defenses, uh, that you're able to to focus a little bit more on those decisions. And it's
0: doubly hard when you're uh, on the offensive side of the ball because most of the decisions, not all, but most of them come when you have the ball. Exactly. Am I going to go a four-on-fourth down? Am I going to go in a two-point play? Where will you utilize the timeouts? and when I was certainly head coach and I had coordinators that called both sides of it, then yes, as a head coach, that's your primary job. When I was also calling it, then I had somebody on the staff. For me, it was Vic Fangio, now the defensive coordinator with the 49ers, who was brilliant at it, to remind me of the situations, just that little prod, hey coach, have you thought about this? We're coming up on this situation. Uh, because you're right, the nuance of it can it can get away from you, and you're absolutely right. Those are much more critical decisions than you know. am I going to run an ISO or am I going to to run a <laughs> kick pass to the flat, uh, that, that have an, a, a, a definitive outcome in the game. And then it also has to be, we, we'll allude to another game, um, in, in Tampa Bay when they went up and played Green Bay. Right. Raheem Morris went for it uh, in conventional sense a little bit early for a two-point conversion play, went for a couple onside kicks. But those are conversations that you have, and he's a head coach that he's calling the defensive side of the ball. But those are conversations you have with your staff that that say, okay, we're on the road. It's the Green Bay Packers. We've got to maximize every point. I can guarantee you those decisions were made on Friday or Saturday before they even got to the game on yeah, Sunday.
1: Th- those weren't decisions made during the game. And I'm sure what Raheem and his staff were thinking was, Number one, we've got to try to steal possessions from the Green Bay Packers. Because if we just go possession for possession, they're going to beat us. They're going to score more points than us. So we've got to try to steal possessions. And that's why you saw a surprise onside kick early in the game. That's why you saw them onside kick later in the game. Uh, The decision to go for two, uh, while conventional wisdom would say that's a little bit too early, you know, he's probably thinking, I don't know if we're going to get a chance to get down here again, you know, or, you know, are they going to score and, and, and go up by eight or nine? It's going to be tough for us to match them. So let's try to get points, as many points as we can while we're down here. Uh, didn't It didn't work out yesterday, but like you said, Brian, those are the things that they talked about before the game. What I want to ask you is this, is did you have trouble when you were an offensive play caller and you were also the head coach? Removing the emotional part of it for from a decision in terms of going for it on fourth down, uh, maybe going for two, because you felt like, hey, I've got the perfect play here, or we can get it done. You know, that competitive nature that you had as a play caller, did you have to fight that battle within yourself to yeah. make what was maybe the better decision for your team as a whole? Good
0: question. I actually found and so concerned about the very thing you're talking about, that do I let myself as the play caller, as the offensive coordinator, get the better of the head coach because of that enthusiasm, I actually found and had to go back and critique myself a little bit that was I becoming a little too conservative because I was so conscious of it. Was I deferring too much to the conservative View of the head coach, and was I losing a little bit of my competitive fire? That if if I had been removed and could have thought it through a little bit more, saying, "Yeah, let's go for it. Let's be aggressive. Let's do those things." But I didn't want to succumb to the emotion of it. That I kind of overreacted the other way. I
1: think. I think it takes really a smart and special guy to be able to do both of those things. I think to to, and certainly to call offensive plays and manage the game. I mean, that's very very difficult and. uh, you know not only uh, you know making the right decision for your team but balancing those those two emotions that must be flowing through your body during a game critical third down play here for the denver broncos working from the gun tebow two receivers to the left one to the right tebow takes the snap rush is coming tebow has some room in front of him tebow looping to the left side tebow on
0: the move 10 yard line five yard line
1: it's tebow time touchdown Tim Tebow has done it again. 20-yard rip to put the Broncos in front. Late stages of the fourth quarter. It's 16-13, Denver.
0: I want to change gears here a little bit because, and, and obviously, the Denver Broncos, it's fun to watch what they're doing and the whole Tim Tebow thing. But I'm going to preface it by this and going forward because we've got a lot of good football left to talk about for the rest of the year. I'm right now I'm vowing here on the podcast and on our coaches show and when I do radio I am done qualifying my critiques of Tim Tebow. <laughs> I find myself on every single time Tim Tebow's name comes up, I feel compelled to say, Well, you know what, he's a great kid. But, well, you know what, we critique a lot of people here. We talk about coaches' decisions, and but we don't know necessarily always qualified and say, well, you know what, Andy Reid's a good guy and a good coach, but uh, I'm done doing it with Tebow. Okay, I'm just going to take it at face value. What we, we were both very interested in seeing how the New York Jets were going to play Tim Tebow. They played him just the way we thought they would. They manned up on the back end a great deal, put eight guys on the line of scrimmage. Um, what shocked me, and it's not a criticism of Tim Tebow, because they were able to make it win. Two things jumped out at me. One, their defense does not get enough credit. Vaughn Miller, what they're able to do, remember, was a pick six made a big difference in that game. And then I was shocked at New York's inability to tackle in the open field, bring eight guys. That last play that set up the touchdown by Tim Tebow, uh, that that safety crashing from the inside, terrible contain. Uh, I was shocked at how poorly they played their eight-man front.
1: Well, first of all let me talk about the Broncos defense because that they're the unsung heroes right now and Dennis Allen who's their new defensive coordinator in conjunction with John Fox who's a great defensive mind have just been spectacular over this you know last five games where they've gone four and one and and Von Miller is about as explosive a player as I can remember ever seeing as a rookie I mean the guy is just an extreme talent but uh the the Jets, they, they played that game so well defensively the entire game until the play you're talking about, which is the the play that Tebow scored on. They brought an eight-man blitz, so they were playing, you know, without a safety in the middle, man coverage. And it's, it's inexplicable that the safety coming off of the right side did not keep contained. Because I know this, as a defensive coach, when you're blitzing you always and you're playing a mobile quarterback, Tim Tebow's a mobile quarterback, is the first thing you say is we've got to be contained conscious, especially if we're bringing pressure up the middle. Because if a quarterback feels pressure up the middle, then he's going to flush to the outside. And it was just... An amazing mistake that a professional athlete would make to let a guy like Tim Tebow get outside of him. All they needed to do was keep him inside. They're going to get a sack, or Tim's going to throw the football away, and they're still in business. Instead, he gets away for a, a you know a touchdown run that that sinks the jet ship. Well,
0: and it's it it was amazing to watch, and and we're going to see as the season progresses how people, but 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 it, by the same token, I'm excited to watch Tim Tebow play. It's fun to watch what John Fox is doing. With that team, uh, he got caught a little bit last week uh, with an interview w- with with someone where he had questioned, or basically in an honest moment, basically said, you know, if we had to play a conventional offense, we'd be in real trouble because Tim Tebow can't do that. Came back and and bit him a little bit, um, but it was, I think, it was in a very honest moment, and he had to apologize for it. And we all as coaches been caught in those situations but I think it very frankly said, okay, this is what we are. We still, as we get to the end of the year, I'm going to be fascinated to see because they still have some major decisions to make. Is this the way we can go forward?
1: You know, I watched the game, and uh, I watched it purely because I wanted to see, number one, what the Jets did defensively, if they changed their scheme to take, to try to, to counter what the Broncos were going to use, do with Tim Tebow and how they changed their scheme. And then, number two, I wanted to see how Mike McCoy – Uh, continue to evolve this Bronco offense and what kind of creative ways they could come up with to try to move the ball down the field without throwing it. Because when you saw Tim Tebow throw the ball, whether it be from the pocket or on the move, you certainly can tell that he's got a lot of work to do. He's not accurate. His mechanics are not great. Um, He throws it a little bit too hard sometimes. But it was fun for me to see the creative ways that Mike McCoy found to move the ball down the field with formations, plays that we don't typically see in the NFL and things like that. And so I think for me it's, more, it's less about Tim Tebow and what he can or can't do and more about, number one, the Broncos' defense and how they continue to evolve, and then about the creativity of Mike McCoy.
0: Let's, let's, let's kind of sum up the, the AFC real quick here uh, as we're going forward. We'll ask it every week because it's, it's a week-to-week deal. Uh, who's the best team in the AFC right now? You know, still keep coming back to the consistency that Pittsburgh is showing. I was very impressed with Cincinnati, by the way. Obviously, Baltimore yes. won, and it's good that they won at home. But I love what I'm seeing in Cincinnati. They had a tough stint of going, obviously, Pittsburgh, then Baltimore. They've got to play these two teams again. Andy Dalton, like a lot of these young quarterbacks, is throwing a lot of picks. But oh boy, he's learned. I love watching Cincinnati play. I don't know if they're going to be able to hold on to this the rest of the way. Um, New England obviously is 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 showing that they they're still a formidable team. I still think it's either Pittsburgh or Baltimore is the best team in the AFC for me right now.
1: Well, I I, I would throw the Patriots into that mix, yeah. even though they they've struggled on defense. Um, you know, just the Tom Brady factor for me and their ability to move the fall, the ball offensively and, and their, their ability to kind of find a way to get it done when it needs to get done. You know, I'd hang in there with the Patriots. But I'm with you and the Bengals. You know, it's rare that you talk so glowingly about a team that's coming off two straight defeats. But in both of those games, uh, you know, the Steeler game and then the Ravens game, they fought to the end. And they're a very young team. They're a developing team. Uh, you know, there are no moral victories necessarily in the NFL. But I think if you're a, a, a Bengals fan and you look at this objectively, then you have to be excited about the direction that your team is going in. And that is coming off of two really tough losses. I'm going to
0: be excited to see Andy Dalton because we made the point going in. Andy Dalton's going to get schooled a little bit here. Sure. Having not played Pittsburgh and Baltimore. Right. He gets to come back and play him again now. And right. I don't know that he's going to light them up necessarily. He did throw a, a number of picks as well. But I'm going to be anxious to see how he approaches it and how different he is when he now goes through this second run of the Pittsburgh-Baltimore combination.
1: You get a feeling in talking to Andy Dalton, which I got to do earlier this year, and then watching him is that he's, he's certainly not intimidated. He's very, very competitive, and he seems to me to be a guy that is really going to learn from his mistakes and attack uh, what he has seen to be maybe some holes in a, you know, every every defense has holes. It has strengths and it has weaknesses. But I think he's the kind of guy that really understands how people are trying to attack him and where maybe there are vulnerabilities in the defense. I love his competitiveness. I love his composure. And, uh, you know, it, it's going to be really fun to see, like you said, Brian, not only how he plays in the next two times he plays those teams, but, you know, can you imagine – what kind of player he's going to be, how much better he's going to be lining up for the first snap next year in 2012 just because of the experiences that he's gained this year. Uh, and the young
0: quarterbacks that are playing. We saw Christian Ponder throw three yep. interceptions. We saw Cam Newton throw three interceptions. And it's costing those guys, but I'm with you 100%. They're learning lesson, lessons that can only be learned in the game. Right. So it, it's, it's fun to watch these with quarterbacks. With all those guys, you see talent. You do. You
1: know, you see, yeah, they threw three interceptions, but they're not like – oh, my goodness, this is what we're going to get from this guy. It's, it's Man, these guys have got talent. When they cut down on some of these errors, boy, are they going to really take this this league by storm. The thing I'll
0: say about Dalton that that I think is an advantage is he's having to carry these to this team. And, yeah, the mistakes cost them on a team – that's that's in a playoff run. Right. Cam Newton and, and Christian Ponder are on teams that they can throw cuz what are you going to do? Lose another game at right. this point who cares? So you just keep throwing it up. I don't know that you learn lessons quite as vividly as an Andy Dalton is learning right now cuz he's carrying a team that could make yeah, the playoffs. He's right so, in the fire. I yeah, mean, every so every
1: play he makes, every decision he makes is critical to the the future of that team this year. And, and that's uh, an additional learning process for him. Mistakes, let's yeah.
0: let's jump over to the NFC. Um, interestingly, when we've said this before, Jim, that we're at the point now for me, whenever I look at any game, it's not only who, but what did they do, who did they do it against, and where did they do it. Um, uh, Dallas won in overtime against Washington. New York lost to Philadelphia. I still like what I see in New York. I'm not sure that I'm not more impressed – with New York in a loss to Philadelphia than I am with Dallas in the win against Washington wow. because Washington's not very good.
1: No, no, they're not very good. Uh, but as you and I both know, every game in this league is a is a darn battle, and they're tough to win no matter who you're playing. And the the Cowboys going on the road and, and beating the Redskins. The Redskins are always going to get up to play the Cowboys. They're always going to give them their, their best shot because it's such a rivalry. I don't know that I can sit here today and, and say that I – see a team either the Giants or the Cowboys that in my mind is a clear favorite to win that division I think that uh, there's still a lot to be learned about both of those teams in the next few weeks before I can say definitively that you know I, I think the Giants are going to win the the NFC East or I think the, the Cowboys are going to win the NFC East I, I think that uh, if you look at their schedules
0: yeah uh, that, that, that's certainly
1: say the Cowboys have an advantage but Every game, you know, it, it doesn't matter who you're playing. They're all tough. And uh, we've
0: been saying for a while, it likely will come down to the head-to-head right, with these guys when it comes right down to it. But um, and, and both, again, and that's not to say I don't think Dallas isn't going to be a good football team. Tony Romo had a good day the other day, minimized the turnovers. And as we know, that's the key. If, if Tony Romo doesn't turn the ball over, the Dallas Cowboys are going to be pretty good. Third and two
1: at the Arizona 18. Edwards is in the game. He's out split to the left against Patrick Peterson. Smith under center, single back gore. Alex pops up, waves arms. Back down under center, strong right on the formation. And Smith back the throw, looking right, throws a fade to the
0: far corner of the end zone. Caught by Vernon Davis for a 49er touchdown. A beautiful throw by Smith. We've got a lot of good football coming down the way, particularly on Thursday now. We talk about the matchups that we have. Detroit in Green Bay. Uh, that What a great matchup. And then on, on the NFL Network that night, we've already alluded to it, the San Francisco 49ers and the Baltimore Ravens. I got a little bone to pick with with the league in sending a West Coast 49er team on a short week to play an East Coast Baltimore Ravens team. You know, you, you don't want the schedule to become a competitive disadvantage to someone. Home game's great. You're, you have the advantage at home. You get to pick up an advantage when you then get to home that to me if i'm if i 'm jim Harbaugh i 'm kind of going, "Wait a minute now, did someone really look at this sending us on a short week to the east coast
1: someone 's got to do it though, and I mean just the the compelling matchup of Harbaugh versus Harbaugh and uh, a really good san francisco forty er team I think what 's neat is that the forty ers are getting to play a prime time game that everybody's going to be watching on nFL network and i I think that the excitement, the emotion the adrenaline of the game will overcome. The fact that it is a short week and they are having to travel east (laughs) to play it. I mean, it's a disadvantage. But the one thing about the San Francisco 49ers this year is they've gone east four times and they're 4 0 in those games. Now, they weren't short weeks, but you know, I just, there's, they, they, they are playing with so much confidence and so much belief in what Jim Harbaugh tells them that I, I just don't know that it's going to affect him. Quite frankly, I think if anything's going to affect him, it's going to be the Baltimore Ravens' defense, you know, which is if, if Ray Lewis plays, and we, we know what they can do uh, in terms of stopping the run. We know how they can get after the passer. Um, it's going to be an emotional environment for Alex Smith, maybe a more emotional environment than he's been in this, this year. And it'll we're going to learn a lot about the 49ers. If they can play well and somehow find a way to win that game, I mean, goodness sakes, it speaks volumes for, for what they're doing.
0: Here's what I'm interested in seeing on Thursday night, Jim, is, and you and I both know this, that you can get discouraged from running the ball fairly easily. Right. And I, in ba- all those years in Baltimore, I saw it, where teams would come in and you could see right from the get-go, they'd give up on the run entirely too early. And when, when that happened, we knew we had them. Jim Harbaugh and the 49ers, even if they have some tough sledding early, they're not going to give up on the run. And as we saw in the Seattle game, against Baltimore when they struggled that if you keep pounding away in there if you have the fortitude and if the game allows you to do that if it doesn't get out of hand that will challenge the 40 or the 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 Baltimore Raven defense in a way they're not often challenged
1: well the thing that plays in the advantage of the 49ers is the fact that they're playing so well defensively and I think they will be able to continue to run the game, run the football as long as they want to run the football because I don't see them giving up a lot of points to Baltimore. I mean they're just a defense that they don't give up points easily. They're playing so well with Vic Fangio as their coordinator. Uh, they keep their offense in the game until, like you said, they do wear a defense down a little bit. So. I don't think there's really much chance that uh, the 49ers abandon that running game real early in in the game versus the Ravens. I I think it's going to be one of the great matchups of the year. I really do. I can't wait to see
0: it. I'm going to give you a wild card here, Jim. And and I'm not normally one that, you know, this is such a transient league that players and coaches go from one team to the next. And we're always asked, does it make a difference when when this coach, this player played for that team and now you have them? And we saw the other day where Kevin Cobb said he kind of helped his Arizona Cardinal team in terms of the, play calling uh, against uh, Philadelphia because of the familiarity with it. And I don't know if that's real or not, but I will say this. Vic Fangio, who's the defensive coordinator with the Niners, as you mentioned, he was on my staff in Baltimore, was retained by John Harbaugh, has been there. He understands and knows that defense of the Baltimore Ravens. you got to know that Jim Harbaugh, Greg Roman, who was also on my staff, is now the offensive coordinator. Uh, for the San Francisco 49ers, understands and has been in Baltimore. I think there's a familiarity with that defense, some knowledge that the offensive guys can tap into, and I think Vic Fangio, having been there, knows Cam Cameron, knows that offense of the Baltimore Ravens. There may be, if there is the possibility of an advantage because of that knowledge that they might be able to tap into it that San Francisco might be able to counterbalance that disadvantage of going west coast to east coast on a short week I'm going to be interested to see schematically what they do offensively and defensively to the Ravens
1: oh it'll be fun and you know you know Vic I coached with Vic for a long time as a matter of fact he came into the the league with my dad in New Orleans after having coached with him for the Philadelphia Stars and you know, I have great respect for him. I don't know that there's a better defensive coach in the league, but uh, he has a complete knowledge of the game. And so I'm sure he'll be spending some time with Greg Roman and uh, Jim Harbaugh, you know, early this week, talking about things that the Ravens do defensively that maybe the 49ers can attack. And then, I, you know, I don't know that anyone needs any extra motivation for this game, especially, what, you know, being what the stakes are. But, uh, you know, Vic was passed up for the yep. defensive coordinator job there in, in Baltimore when Rex Ryan left. Uh, he was essentially let go. He was not allowed to go be a defensive coordinator in another team. He was kind of let go. He went to Stanford, joined uh, Jim Harbaugh's staff. Now he's with the 49ers. So I think there might be just a, you know an underlying uh, area of motivation for Vic to uh, really put one on Baltimore. But the players still have to go out and execute. I did
0: the Arizona at San Francisco game, and I know for a fact Vic Fangio, after the game was over, got right in his car, went back down uh, 101, back to the facility, and went right to work on this Thursday night game. That sounds so, like Vic. That sounds like Vic. <laughs> yes, we does. both know him. And we know that's what he did. I, I want you to tell the story because we also we got the the Harbaugh, right? The Jim and John Harbaugh, and obviously all the thing about brothers playing on a really two really good football teams on a Thursday night. You had this a number of times, and I, you know, Mike Smith, my brother-in-law in Atlanta, and we faced each other a few times. Your dad, you had tell right. you have some great stories about facing your dad when he was a head coach.
1: That, those were hard games, you know. It's I think it's different facing your brother or facing your brother-in-law. You know, there's always that sibling rivalry uh, between brothers where you want to win, but when you're playing your dad or your dad's playing a son, it's just a little bit more emotional. or At least it was for me because I understood very very well what it was like for him and how it affected him when he lost a game and yet my charge every week was trying to you know do what I could to help our team beat whomever we were playing but I played my dad I believe it was three times it might have been four times and uh, beat him two out of three or three out of four I know this I only lost him one time first time I played him I was the secondary coach in San Diego he was the head coach in New Orleans Saints and I was in the press box and had kind of an awkward moment because obviously I was emotionally attached to the Saints they were you know, my second favorite team to the team I was working for, which was the Chargers at the time. As a matter of fact, you know, I was young at the time, but I used to keep a Saints sticker on the back of my watch so that I always felt like I was kind of close to the Saints no matter where I was coaching. But we happened to be playing the Saints late in the fourth quarter. We're trying to hold on to a lead, the Chargers. When I say we now, I mean the Chargers. (laughs) We're trying to hold on to a lead. Marion Butts goes into the line of scrimmage, gets hit, fumbles the football. Sam Mills recovers it, and I jump up in the press box and I say, "We've got it!" And realize very quickly that wait, we don't have it; they have it, meaning the Saints. And sat down, and the looks I got from the coaches in the press box—you know—they all <laughs> what, understood. What do you mean we? Yeah, and we went on and won the game, so it was—it was a—it was, was a funny moment, but it was an awkward moment. And then. Uh, we played him again when I was the coordinator of the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, when Peyton was a rookie, we beat him pretty handily. But the game that really sticks out in my mind was my dad's infamous playoffs mm-hmm. game. When he when he had that sound bite after the game, I was the coordinator for the 49ers that, that game. And we intercepted Peyton five times. I think we ran two back for touchdowns. We really got after him. And it was excruciating for me. Because you know game, what this meant to your dad. Exactly. He was at a critical time, obviously, in Indianapolis. Yeah, and, and it was excruciating. I mean I loved winning the game, but it was excruciating to stand on the sidelines, look across the field, see someone that you love and respect as much as you know you would your father and to know what he was going through emotionally. And uh and then you know, I after the game obviously greeted him at midfield, uh shook hands. There was nothing there was no words exchanged because he was he was not in a good good state of mind right then. We go into the locker room and mooch who I love he ends up giving me the game ball and I don't have that game I, I left it in, the <laughs> I locker room in Indianapolis you know I, I really I mean I was honored I felt it was great that Steve recognized the job that our defense did but you know as a son I didn't want that ball you know as a competitor gosh we got ourselves a win but as a son to see your dad on the other sideline going through what he went through was really difficult now I'm not sure it'll be the same for the Harbaugh.
0: Well, I know you didn't want to keep that ball because you were a dad, but if it were brothers, I guarantee you, I'd have kept that. I'd pull it out every Thanksgiving dinner yeah. for the rest of our lives. Just to remind them, yeah, yeah, remember when I got you that way. Third down, Packers, four yards to go. Tampa Bay, 40-yard line. It's a two-point ball game. Green Bay, 28, Tampa Bay, 26. Finley wide to the right side, three receivers to the left. Roger shifts into the shotgun. Kuhn to his right in the backfield. Cobb in motion to the right side. Long count by Rodgers. Looks over the defense. Tampa coming on a blitz. Snap to Rodgers. Looking loft to the left side for Nelson. Oh. Makes the catch. 15, 10, 5. Touchdown! Jordy Nelson's second touchdown reception. Myron Lewis, the man beaten down the left side. Rodgers again against the Blitz. Just unstoppable against the Blitz. And it's 34-26 Green Bay. 40-yard pass play. Let, let's go to the earlier Thanksgiving game. Uh, interesting matchup, the Lions against Green Bay. And we know the Lions, you know, uh, Green Bay's been a little vulnerable with the big play, certainly with Calvin Johnson, Brandon Pettigrew. Uh, if, if Matthew Stafford, he got a great, what, five touchdowns this last week. That's how they're going to, you know, obviously they want to come up with the big plays. But I want to ask you, we we talked, we role-played last week about how do you stop Tim Tebow when you talked about an eight- and nine-man front and how you'd create this. Let me ask you, if you had to face, and, and and we just talked about your relationship with Dom Capers and Vic Fangio, and if you had to face this Green Bay Packer team, I'm interested in <laughs> knowing, you know, clearly you've got to get home with a four- and five-man rush because yes. if you bring a lot of pressure, Aaron Rodgers is going to dice you up. But if you play pure zone, he's going to dice you up. How would you attack Aaron Rodgers and the Packers?
1: Well, I I don't know that, that you can stop them defensively. I really don't. I don't know that you can even slow them down enough to uh, – to have a chance to win the game defensively. I think what you have to do is you have to take a little bit of the approach that Tampa took, and I think by that you have to try to steal possession or possessions from Green Bay. So you have to be willing to uh, attempt a fake punt. You have to be willing to try a surprise onside kick. You have to be willing offensively to sacrifice your statistics to run the football, run the play clock down to you know two or three seconds before you snap the ball. You have to be, uh, you know, willing to take some risks, I think, defensively to try to maybe force Aaron Rodgers into a poor decision. But, you know, we haven't seen him make very many poor decisions. So uh, rather than focus on what I do defensively, I think I'd focus on what I'd try to do as a team, what my mindset was as a team going in. And I think that's always risky when you're a head coach because you want to show confidence in in your team to your team. And... Uh, when you go into a meeting room on Wednesday and you're getting ready to face the Green Bay Packers, and you essentially tell your defense, because uh, of your strategy of running the football, snapping it with one second, trying fake f- punts, maybe trying to surprise onside, you're essentially telling them, guys, you know what? I don't think you're good enough to to beat the Green Bay Packers, and that can be dicey because as a coach, you're supposed to p- show confidence in your players. So, you know, they've they've got you in a real quandary. As a defensive coordinator, what I would do is I would turn to you as uh, the offensive coordinator. Say, say hey, "How about you hold on to the ball for about do forty got, minutes? What do uh? you got going this week that can help us on defense?"
0: I'll take all the help I can yeah. get. Uh, before we finish with this, I want to ask you about, uh, as a, a former head coach, um, a team that's now ten and zero. You know, they're, with every game now, more and more talk about sixteen and zero, and they're likely uh, all but, uh, you know, could finish up with the division early. Um, let's talk a little bit about embracing that and what you would do. I'm interested in knowing what you would do if you had a team in this situation. How would you go out embracing the challenge? I know it's all about this week. It's all about this week. But how do you embrace the idea of embracing history, going 16-0, and going on and obviously ultimately winning a Super Bowl and being the first undefeated team, or now just the second team to do it?
1: Well, I think, first of all, this week I wouldn't make it an issue because I think you're playing on Thanksgiving against a division rival, the Detroit Lions, and so that should be your focus. But if they win that game, then I think it certainly has to be something that Mike McCarthy starts to address with his team. And I think he he probably would do is, is say, hey, why the focus is on winning each week, we have a chance to make history here, you know, if we go 16-0. and Go through the playoffs undefeated and win the Super Bowl. You know that's uh, quite a feat. So let's let's not lose track of the fact that we have a chance to do that. But in order to accomplish that goal, you know we've got to focus each week on becoming the best football team we can become that week. And
0: you've been in that situation. Yeah, it's worth it's worth embracing these type of goals. We went fifteen and one with the nineteen ninety eight Vikings team. And we lost early enough that we didn't have to carry that burden around, but we were chasing the all-time scoring record, and as an offense to energize, particularly when you have the playoffs, you know, nailed down kind of early, you want to find something to energize your players. You know, let me finish it with this: if if you're a team, and I've been in this situation to where if you've got a game or two left you've already secured your spot in the playoffs do you pull guys i was always uncomfortable with that i had a tough time with going to one guy and saying you're so valuable to this team i'm going to set you down but then going to the guy next to him going so you got to take double reps Mm -hmm. to account for him
1: i think that's tough and uh i think we've all been in that situation you know you find that same situation in the preseason sometimes as well uh you know, Alex Gibbs, who was a great offensive line coach, and I was lucky to work with at the San Diego Chargers, and then he was my offensive line coach when I was the head coach of the Falcons. You know, that was a real bone of contention with him is that, you know, in, and I learned a lot from him in listening to him talk about that. You know, how do you tell your offensive line that they've got to stay in there and play when you're willing to take your starting quarterback out? You're, you're kind of sending the wrong message to your team. But I also believe this. I think that players understand – you know who has extreme value to their team and if it's a guy like Aaron Rodgers and you decide that you're going to take him out and get Matt Flynn some snaps, but you want it to happen with the first-nearing offensive line, I don't know that your offensive line is taking that as a slight okay. against them. I, you maybe can build that as a positive. We want Matt Flynn to get some snaps because we might need him, and we want to make sure that we do it in the right way. And I'm asking you guys as a five-man unit to, to stay in there and do a tremendous job for this guy so we can develop as a team. I think it all depends on how you frame it.
0: I also worry about the rhythm that you lose. If you say you're going to let your guys sit this last game, you know they're not going to focus in practice, and particularly if you have a bye. Now you go that entire week. You have the bye week. Then you come back, and now that's almost three full weeks before they're in a live situation playing with the real bullets you know I struggle with that well
1: we'd all love to be in that situation every year where you're having to make this very tough decision but it almost is a no win situation so you've done such a great job during the year winning games and getting yourself into this position where you're in a no win situation so I think it's a good problem to have I think uh you know it's like we talk about a lot of weeks Brian if uh if you keep your guys in there and you win all your games and you stay healthy, what a great decision. If you leave them in there and somebody gets hurt, boy, what are you doing, you idiot? You know, Or if you take them out of there and you happen to win the games and you have momentum and you play well in the playoffs, you say, what – smart really smart pulling your players out and keeping them healthy but if you pull them out and you get beat deep once again you're
0: an idiot so but once again it's a position we'd all like to be in that's going to do it for the coach's show podcast presented by bud light you can download the coach's show podcast from itunes or go to nfl.com slash podcast also be sure to catch the coach's show on the nfl network every monday at 6 30 p.m eastern thanks for listening everyone